Hello, and welcome to Behind the Screens. I'm your host, the DM from Flavored Enemy. We're going to be talking to several different DMs from all manners of experience and levels of skill, and talking to them about their different tips and tricks and how they go about taking on the monumental task that is DMing. Now, for sake of ease, we're going to be sticking to Dungeons and & Dragons and Pathfinder, but you can take these tips and tricks and apply them to your game as you see fit. Yeah, stay tuned and enjoy, and by all means, send us your requests for things you want us to cover at flavoredenemy at gmail.com. Stay tuned and enjoy. Uh, today we're going to be talking about world building and, you know, kind of just how to actually build a world of your own or take a world that has already been crafted and making your own, adding little details and flares and bits to kind of like make it feel more alive and less rigid uh, today with me i have um today with me i have francis from flavored enemy why don't you go ahead and uh tell us a little about you francis what the hell? uh <laughs> so i'm a newer dm i've been doing it actually only three sessions now but i've been working on building this world to put my players into for well, it's been probably about six months of working on it so far and uh, yeah just creating everything even down to the commerce and uh, I'm the DM over at uh, Flavored Enemy I've been DMing now for about six years um, and I spent the last three years building uh, the world of Vittore, which uh, the Tales of Vittore Flavored Enemy takes place on, um, having poured a lot of detail into the um, divinity and religious structures, as well as city layouts and commerce and world history. Uh, so, to kind of get us started on the subject, what's... What's the first thing that you feel is like the most important thing to broach when it comes to tackling the huge mountain that is world building? Apparently it's naming your world starting with V, because mine's Velikor. Uh <laughs> But I think really, for me, the big thing with the world building was I had an idea that I wanted to use for a world-changing arc of a campaign. And I had that one little niche area and it involved a new race that I wanted to put in that wasn't in, you know, the wizard's books that I haven't dealt with before. So for me, I found taking that one location that I want the big changes and pretty much the majority of this arc to take place in and I worked outwards from there and I've heard different people with different things some say start big work your way in I just found that taking this one point the most about in my head already and in a sense spider webbing from there to find, like, 
for using commerce is I knew what kind of trade routes I wanted. So from there, I could determine where the next major cities moving outward would be uh, to start to really build up the infrastructure, I guess, so to say. And then from there, I was able to start to play around with race interactions, trade, and then uh, the types of topography. Yeah. And I think that's like, like, just goes to show about like how everyone, you know, mentally is, is, is on different wavelengths, you know, so not every, not everyone functions the exact same way, especially when it comes to something as big as world building. Because, you know, like, on, on, on some instances, it's it's easier to start with like a, like a smaller scope and like kind of work your way outwards. Some people like to, you know, get all the, the basics done first and work inwards. Um, I feel like I had a bit more of like a, like a narrative approach to it. Uh, when I first created Vittore, the concept was I created the creation mythos. So like how the world was born. Like, like, what all happened in order for this world to be born? You know, I took inspirations from how Aztec creation mythos talked about how the world was created. Um, also, looking at uh, even, like, uh, the, the Christian um, w creation of the world. And all the different kinds of that these were described. And all the, the rich and flavorful uh, descriptions that were given. And I kind of use those as inspiration to kind of get a generic outline of, you know, I want, you know, to describe this, address this, talk about this, and went through creating the creation mythos. And then once I had that, once I had that, I had a good idea of the mythology behind the world and could address different things like, you know, this one particular race is you know connected to this one particular aspect of the creation mythos for example in vittore uh the Firum, which are a phoenix like uh avarian race um who are directly related to and created by solus who is the sun serpent the actual coiled sun itself um when he spit fire down to the uh down to the earth down to vittore it created them upon impact. Now, maybe this isn't exactly what happened. Maybe this is just rich, favorable text to describe something. But because of that's how the world views it, that's how Vittore views it, it creates this, this like really neat and tidy connection between the two. Yeah, and it's funny. Uh, <laughs> the pantheons and the gods and stuff was definitely one of least worked on before the game started and by least worked on i mean i definitely didn't uh because i was so stuck on trade routes i guess uh but i think one of the things that i love about the dming side even while building the world is the improvisation aspect of it so when one of my players asked me about it and we were like just about gonna get started uh you get to sort of think on your feet, and so I made this world that sits almost between 
the planes, so when people go through different portals and stuff, technically they're passing through this realm. So it opens up a lot of options for me too in the future for bringing in different races or sending players out into either other pre-built worlds or, or any of the other planes. But it also lets me play around with the mythos that different people in my world have. And that was a lot of fun, actually, to start to build on. One of my players was like, what gods are there? And I was like, what gods are there? Um, I decided that because a lot of places in, in the wizard's world and all of the worlds are, like, multiversed. Uh, that with having portals and plane portals going through, that this was almost like an intersect. That some, that I could sort of pull from places that were around, but in the future I can also send players to other places fairly easily. Well, I mean, so like when you're when you're coming up with your the world building concepts right and the things that are mm -hmm. trying to take it from a generic setting to a lived-in world right what kind of things do you add in order to give it that feeling of detail for that i definitely try and put things that are enough rooted in experiences that we've had in reality so that the emotions and the feelings of the players also gets pulled into the world. So like I was saying with the racism between the Winter Elves and the Drow, um, and in the cities, you know, having the different uh, levels of living going through and really taking your time when you bring players into a new area to give the description, pull the setting, really just slow it down, take the time, build the world in the words for them and bring them in. So, you know, if they walk in just like, you know, a slum, really bring in even like explain to them how it smells tell them you know about someone that they may see sitting on the side of the road you know begging for some money things that people have seen even just walking you know downtown city wherever you might be type thing and re really trying to pull not just the visual of it, but pull the emotion and pull in the other senses as well. And just, you know, as a DM, you're a storyteller, so you have to tell the whole story. Yeah, and I think a lot of that's like, you know, some, some concepts that you could end up using to describe any kind of little little details or, or, or even just the big things, you know, for example, uh, different different groups or different peoples in different areas might have different relationships with the same thing so for example um uh, you know let's say 
you know, a, a, a cult of, of the Dragon Queen might have a different relationship with the Dragon Queen than, let's say, a, um, a, a, a free-loving, adventuring society. Uh, or, you know, just kind of like detailing those stark differences in the ways that people view things and are related to things in comparison to each other, you know. For example, the the residents of the Coal Ring in Alteris may view it differently than, you know, let's say if a Spriggan from Telmarin walked through there and saw everything that was going on there. Um, and, you know, just kind of giving that, that unique description that leaves it to be viewed by your party. Uh, you don't want to, you don't want to, in my experience, you don't want to evoke the emotion for the, for the player, for the character. You, you, you want to provide vague enough verbiage and wordage while you're describing the place that they can view it within their mind's eye, but that view has like a, a viewpoint from different angles based off of their backstory, where they're from, um, their, their their races and classes, and social standing, stuff like that. And, you know, to, to kind of give that unique viewpoint of the world from different angles is what I feel is, is how you get like this multi-layered type of world rather than like a two-dimensional looking down from the top kind of thing. Yeah, no, definitely. That's... And I guess that's one thing is I can... I know that I've fallen prey to it is giving too much description before. Because there, like you were yeah. saying, there's that... You have to give enough. Uh... And I know that, you know, I've fallen prey to giving too much. Um, especially on, like, one NPC where I made my players cry because they killed him. But that's their fault for being murder hobos. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's, that deserves its whole nother, a whole other episode just discussing murder hobos. Oh my god, it's my sister. I spent a whole... My <laughs> whole second session was, like, three hours long. My party did not move from where they were, but we went from two bodies to eight. That's about right. And it was like, oh my god, guys. <laughs> uh, like, how do you change, how do you explain the world to someone when they don't move? Um, <laughs> true, true. But, uh, I mean, back to world building, one thing that one yeah. of my friends suggested to me, and I don't know if you'll keep this chunk in it, but uh, it's called World Anvil. And for someone who is fresh to building like a whole world to themselves, um, it was really handy to get started on because it gives like prompts and ideas for like, well, what about this? And what about that? And you can make little articles and keep those notes organized that way. Yeah. Uh, so I found that really interesting just to get started. No, I, I definitely agree. I definitely agree. Um, one of the one of the ones that I used when I was first getting into DMing um, was uh, Donjon, which is a set of tools that have for 
all kinds of um, uh, different TTRPGs, um, including D&D, Pathfinder, Starfinder, um, all kinds of stuff. And they had different things like, you know, um, random town generators and um, different little uh, things that you can randomly generate uh, taverns and shops and generate their whatever items that they had within the shops. Oh, fun. Um, and that, that was a fun little fun little tool that I used at the beginning to kind of get an idea. And it also, playing around with those random generators, helped me to figure out what kind of things I would need to think about when actually going to craft my own world. You know, it's like little, little things that may seem insignificant on the outside. Uh, like, for example, coming up with uh, a special signature dish that each tavern had. It seems insignificant. But every time a but, player walks in, we ask what's on the menu. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And and, and, even, and you know what? You know what? If, if, if you're in Spokestat and you head to Gluttony Gals, you know what's on the menu. It's meat and it's always on the menu. <laughs> it's whatever, the, um, whatever died last. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, but it also adds character to that tavern. Especially because taverns are besides dungeons probably the place that players and characters spend the most of their time so fleshing out those locations you know giving them a, a unique vibe and a unique like atmosphere that is unique to that tavern it makes it feel like it's like it's something different you know i shouldn't walk into it's it's not like an Applebee's where you walk into one in any city and they're all the same. Each one needs to be different. Applebee's, oh my god. And, and I mean, unless unless you want to have a set of chain taverns across your world, I'm not saying that's a bad idea. It is something you can do. I mean, I mean, take a look at a take a look at a Bullywugs from from uh, Dungeons and Daddies. They got one in every city. Every city. <laughs> well, I suppose uh, but, it saves some time in building the tavern each time, right? It does, it does, it does. Uh, <laughs> but, um, you know, and it kind of depends on, on, on your world, you know, and, and what all kind of vibe and atmosphere you're trying to go for on the general scale. Um, so, like, there's, there's working down in the little details like that. And then there is the grander scope of things. So like uh, regions, climates, you know, are you going to are you going to discover are you going to use biomes? Are you going to use biomes that are similar to Earth, whereas the poles are Arctic and the closer you get to the middle, the more humid it gets? Um, are you going to inverse that? Are you even going to use a sphere based world? Maybe you have a cube. Maybe your Earth is flat. Um, and all things that you can address from the top going down. Yeah, uh, I definitely found with that that I had a lot of fun building my continent map and breaking out the provinces and stuff. Yeah. It even just helped, like, sort of just scribbling it around a few times and then being the lovely little photoshop nerd that i am uh 
I found this very helpful is there's a bunch of free cartography brushes that you can get. And yes. just being able to like be like, well, what if I put a mountain range here? Because then I was able to think of it in a 3D term instead of just like this flat amoeba that I had drawn in front of me. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. sort of helps figure out to like, okay, if I've got mountains here and forests here, okay, maybe this race comes from this region and breaking yes. it down that yeah. way. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I kind of used, because uh, I used Incarnate, um, that's I-N-K-R-N-A-T, yeah, um, to, to, sorry, yeah, to, to, that, that, that's what I that's what I used for 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 my world uh, for when I made the maps for uh, Vittore and Chrysanthia is I used that to kind of like get an idea of the regions and where they're situated, how do I separate things and such, um, and kind of playing around with it, it kind of starts to spark different little ideas that then make it into the mythos of the world. Yeah. Also, if you, at least for me, there was a whole thing to the west that I didn't know what I wanted to do with, so I just cut it off by mountain range and said lore-wise that people haven't been there for a really long time. Because uh, there's some magical, you know, something blocking it, so... Yeah. Like, you can... You don't... Me, I found I didn't need to have the world, like, map 100% built. Just have, like, I have ideas for in there. I just don't know how to put them in yet. And my players aren't close enough to it yet, so I can work on it. <laughs> yeah, and that's the other thing. You don't have to have all the answers now. You don't have to have all the answers before you do anything with the world. You're allowed to create as you go. You're allowed to wing it. That's actually probably the be best piece of advice I can give to any DM is that, hey, it's okay to wing it sometimes. You don't have to prepare everything. Yeah, and like your players can add to it too if something happens that you're mm -hmm. like, oh, that's kind of nifty. Or if a player asks. So, so, yeah, so we've just opened up the, uh, the, the floor for some questions. Uh, so... We have uh, one user who uh, is one of our players who plays Quincy, and uh, he wants to know, in you know the world creation, why does the sun go down at night? So, in in your world, why does the sun go down at night, and how do you and how do you handle that? And I have not actually considered that question because in my head it's just world is globe globe do spin sun go away um but really if i think about it it would probably more so have to do with the fact that it is in this weird in between of the planes that the sun would almost in a sense glitch in and out across the different planes almost in a time like you wouldn't really notice it but it would yeah. be going 
in and out of the different planes and it would eventually cross over a threshold that would have it be going down. I still work in a globe situation. Yeah. See, and then like, and like you can address all kinds of like, like in, in, uh, in Vittore, since Solus, the Sun Serpent, is the actual sun itself. Um, I actually have it to where it doesn't, there's no, there is no rotation. There is no spinning, anything like that. What happens is, is that systemically, the quiet, who is, you know, one of my, one of my demon princesses, uh, specifically the demon queen, uh, she balances night and day. So systemically, she dances across the sky, blotting out Solus by slowly covering him up because she comes in between Vittore and okay. him. Okay. So like something and like it's just a fun little fun little bit there that, you know, some people some people might be like, oh, hey, this is how the people within Vittore would answer that question. But is that actually what happens? Who knows? Now, if the world isn't um, spinning, how do we stay on? <laughs> exactly, exactly. See, but this is this is from the viewpoint of the residents of Vittore. That doesn't necessarily mean it's the truth. That's the no. lore for what happens. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> um, so let's see here. I have another question. Here we go. Um so our fellow player Trover, um, who plays he plays Trover on Flavored Enemy, um, wants to know. Uh, I'm pretty sure Trover's been hitting the drinking gourd a little too hard, but I'm gonna read this for word for word. We can figure it out as we go along. Were NPCs adventurers, or did some grow to take over the shop or job they do? Okay. Uh, and like, like, were were like NPCs within the world? Did you have them be adventurers before they became the NPCs, or kind of how you address that? And I think that sort of comes down to the question of what shop or tavern or whatever it is, and in what city. Like, for me, I have. Ever the biggest city in the expanse for the winter elves. The winter elves find themselves to be better than, so a lot of them don't become adventurers. But because so much commerce goes through there with all of the minerals, they definitely are more of the kind to stay in the family business and take over the shop or whatever with that. Whereas in Harthino, my middle province, it's farmland, it's where the slaughterhouse is that my players are in. Stuff like that. There's definitely more previous adventurers in there who have gone around and found that this is a very peaceful place to sort of take root after they've you know, gone around and gotten their butts handed to them sometimes. 
So I think. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. I think it's uh, very much dependent on where it is and what kind of, you know, business or whatever it might be is. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I agree. And, you know, there's certain there's certain ones that it makes sense for them to have been adventurers. You know, you wouldn't have a, you know, a commoner running a magic item shop. No, um, you wouldn't. Yeah, you, you you wouldn't have you wouldn't have a uh, a commoner or a non-adventurer running a adventuring guild. Um, in a world filled with clerics who are able to able to heal all kinds of wounds, you wouldn't have a, a non-studious uh, clerics, someone who actually just you know followed the belief rather than practice. You wouldn't have them running a clinic. Um, and, you know, I think it just all kind of like, you know, pertains to the particular scenario, particular um, situation you find yourself in, including location, like you said, and, you know, the, the world itself, too. Uh, for example, you know, you could have a world, and this is entirely possible. This might shock some people. You could have a world where magic is not present. Meaning no, no clerical holy abilities, no sorcerers, warlocks, or wizards. Then how will all... Strictly martial abilities. Oh, now we're getting into, the... you know, create your own fireball. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And, you know, like, and, you know, kind of when you're, when you're talking about the world itself, right? In, in a world like that... In a world like that, where there is no, 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 no magic to support society, you're looking, you're looking more into this world where everyone has at least some sort of martial training to protect themselves. Um, and you know, kind of something that you address when you're when you're when you're creating the world is, you know, what what's what's the general consensus on. Uh, protection you know is that something that's that um you know if there's kingdoms that exist is there something that the kingdoms do do they protect the commoners are the commoners expected to protect themselves is there a mandatory military service all these questions you can ask to determine what the actual level of involvement within the adventuring community is and therefore how many of them exist in the world and then finally with that what all they would do after they're done adventuring you know you have like a, a level level 10 fighter who retires right and he's still got another 30 years left before he kicks the bucket well what's he gonna do for those next 30 years you know if he's got enough gold saved up from his adventuring days he's not really worried about that but he just wants something to fill his time so maybe he takes up being like the uh, man-in-arms for the kingdom, teaching swordsmanship. You know. And I think that just kind of like helps also flesh out the the diversity of, of, of the world itself. 
Um, so, next question we have from, from Z is, will there be dragons? Um, and I think that is a, a general question of whether or not there will be dragons in any particular homebrew world. I'm going to kind of take this and run with it. Um, so, how do you feel about addressing such a, like, monumental uh, aspect of fantasy worlds? Such as dragons, or magic, or or um, wizarding stuff like that. Things that are like things that are like so monumentally ingrained into fantasy worlds that if you have a fantasy world that doesn't have it, it feels weird. For example, like you know, Lord of the Rings, you know, has, still has Smaug, even though it's its own its own living thing outside of all normal fantasy uh, and it's kind of like and every single aspect of fantasy that you can think of there is at least something that's like it so how, how do you handle that when it comes to your world is it something that you feel is necessary or or is it something that you kind of just, just push off to the side um now for fantasy creatures uh, like monsters and such, I definitely haven't fully addressed that myself, I'll be honest with you there. But for the magic aspect of things, I definitely spent a long time debating about how common it is and how widespread it is and how much magic knowledge from one area has been shared with other areas. Um, because I find that magic can very much be like even as distinct as accents from regions that other yeah. like even just if there's more magic available in this world that even in a smaller town ever outside of the big you know cities with the scholars and everything that they can create their own spells and tweak ones that they may have learned or whatever and I really like the idea that by watching someone do essentially the same spell as someone else you can get a general idea of where either they learned it or where they grew up kind of thing. Uh, so for me, magic in itself is a big thing that I wanted to incorporate in the world, just because I find that it can be so distinct. And I've played in a world where magic was super rare, and that was really interesting too, because it narrowed down... There were only like two of us that were magic users in the party, and it also narrowed down the types of items that you could get because suddenly some of those rare and whatever items that are magical items might not exist anymore. <laughs> um, but for the fantasy mythos, magic for me was big in deciding and even sort of just distributing around the provinces 
will there be dragons in mine? Yes, there's going to be at least one dragon, but that's because I want to play a dragon as a DM. Uh, <laughs> but I haven't really, I never really actually considered the fantasy creatures like you were saying. Only the magic side. Um, so, <laughs> uh, that kind of ties directly into how monsters are created in, in my world, right? So in Vittore, monsters are created by uh, Dendar, the Night Serpent, eating the nightmares of mortals. And when she does that, she births the nightmares as flesh and blood creatures. These become monstrosities and aberrations. Um, so, so glad she can't eat my nightmares. And oh my god. That's where the premise comes from. I actually take. Um, nightmares and different studies of nightmares my own nightmares friends of mine nightmares and turn them into flesh and blood creatures um for one example the turnip crab which is a monster native to the torre now the turnip crab is nightmare fuel um it is basically functions like functions like a hermit crab right it has a secretion of a liquid on its back um, that when it burrows into a organic material, which it does so by piercing into the organic material and burrowing in, uh, the secretion slowly starts to turn the organic material into a steel-like substance that does not change the actual appearance of the organic material. It just hardens it to that steel-like substance. Um, now... <clears throat> The reason it got its name is because of the fact that these turnip crabs love to bury themselves into turnips. And farmers would go to pick the turnips and maybe rock hard. And this is where the nightmare fuel happens. A turnip crab, mm -hmm. upon getting scared, lurches out at the person that is picking it up or messing with it. And when it does so, it makes a uh, a, a, a melee attack against it, and upon the hit, the target would have to make a dexterity saving throw. And upon a fail, the turnip crab burrows into the person, slowly turning, no. slowly inflicting the petrified condition upon them. No, that's similar fine. to a uh, uh, Medusa stare. Um, and. Turns, turn, Find me to never pick up any turnip in our lives. Yeah, so you know, turnip crabs, nightmare fuel. Um, so like when, when when I'm creating when I'm creating a a uh, a homebrew monster or homebrew creature, I like to uh, address the general the general concept before I go to anything else. Um, so for example, there's another one, uh, fern lizards. Fern lizards, I wanted to make sure that I balanced the cute and cuddly and friendly creatures with the monstro monstrosity type creatures. Uh, so fern lizards are super adorable. They are, if you're not a fairy. If you are a fairy, they are nightmare fuel. But if you're not a fairy, they actually are really cute. They, when they, they're really friendly, docile, and are playful. Um, when it comes to making friends with other, with mortals and with human-like creatures. Um, so, <clears throat> when not moving, 
they are indiscernible from ferns, hence their name, fern lizards. Um, they have this giant uh, plant-like thing growing out of its back. And once they, uh, one, one thing, another thing that makes them kind of interesting is the fact that they actually eat magic. And I created them as kind of like this like cute pest-like creature, similar to like how rats are, are in our society, but I wanted to make them cute, so you didn't want to kill them. Um, okay, but rats are cute. Yeah, yeah. To some people, not to everybody. But... I know. So, like, fern lizards love eating potions, small magical items, anything they, anything magical they can they get their, their maws on, they'll eat them. Now, this is where the nightmare fuel happens. Fairies are innately magical creatures and small. Fern lizards love eating fairies and pixies and will-o'-wisps. And the reason that they, they do this is because they grow, like they actually can grow in size based off of how much magic they've eaten. So as fern lizards slowly start to get bigger, it's how much magic they've actually eaten. And, you know, creating little, little creatures like this, you know, really helps with that world building stuff too, because like you can add these little things in that are, are unique to your world. Yeah. So. No, that's a lot of fun for <laughs> monsters, but I think my nightmare would be the big bad end guy, but, you know. <laughs> oh, we'll get to that. Right. <laughs> um, so, uh, Z would like to know, what is your opinion on the concept of generational adventures? I.e. offspring. I don't want of to talk current. about the nature of infinity. Oh, I don't want to talk about the nature of infinity. We could go on for hours. And we <laughs> Dang, I was just reading. We don't have time for that. <laughs> <laughs> like, I was trying to get caught up on the new news of what happened to infinity. <laughs> yeah. Um, generational adventures. I actually really like that idea, depending on you know, who's playing it, how far in the future, or even if someone like... Oh my god, I have forgotten their name already. Uh, hold on. That sound terrible. Names are like the worst thing for me. Uh, who is our Minotaur? That'd be Tig. Damn it! <laughs> I knew I was trying to think of something, but, uh, like in Flavored Enemy, Tig, uh, they're already in that generational, maybe not adventure, but of shop and everything. Um, so there's a history there and maybe her parents did adventure before, or if I don't know, I think that adventuring can also, in a sense, pass down through generations like shop owner, especially in a world where, you know, there's a lot of potential turmoil or things that need to be done and not everyone has the abilities 
to do it. So it's... Yeah. I like generational in that aspect. Yeah, I mean, I absolutely agree. I think that my opinion on generational Avengers is fairly evident from, uh, <laughs> from that. Um, the two of the characters from the, uh, the flavored enemy, the King's Call, our first, our first season of the podcast, um, two of them became uh, big players within within uh, Latore, and their daughter is an adventurer. Um, and kind of the one, one thing I played with around with that is the fact that you know, <clears throat> growing up, right. IRL in real life growing up you always hear oh you're so much like your mom you're so much like your dad or what what, what not and growing up growing up you're like I will never be like them and so you do the exact opposite things right and that's exactly what happened with Aurora Aurora is always always told that she looks like her mom and so her mom being a barbarian she went the exact opposite way and became a peace-loving wizard. Um, even though she ended up being an adventurer anyways. <laughs> uh, so, yep. like, it's just this fun way of, like, tying it in together and, like, making all these connections and stuff. So I think that generational adventures add a lot of different story elements that you normally wouldn't be able to get outside of that. And even if it's something that happens off screen, like for example, a uh, ghost within Flavored Enemy, A Tales of Vittore, ghosts learned during his session zero that both of his parents were also rogues back in their day. Oh. Um, did not know this about them beforehand and only figured this out when, as he was getting ready to leave, leave home, they revealed that they've known that he's been a rogue and gifted him their lockpicks and these kind of Aww. these kind of like generational adventuring gear and items you know they can make them super duper magical and like give all this flavor to them or they can simply just be a memento that's important to the character to kind of like make why that didn't i write a nice parent into my backstory <laughs> uh. <laughs> You got oh, cat. You got yeah. Cadmus. You can't complain. I got Cadmus. Yeah. No. Uh, he's gonna steal the show from from maybe not Quincy, but <laughs> he'll he'll take a bit of the show. Yeah. <laughs> uh, like you were saying with you know pulling from the real world, like oh you're so much like your mom, you're so much like this. I always told my dad that I would never be an accountant. Guess what I do for work I'm now? Guess you're an accountant. Hell yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, where you said, you know, Aurora didn't want to, but she somehow ended up doing, but in her own way. It makes it feel more... It helps to suspend the disbelief. Uh, oh, I like this question. Uh, from Quincy for the... What is your opinion on allowing players to create a deity in your setting? And I think that really depends. Like with with mine, where my deities came a little bit later, uh, 
I think that it would work actually very well if I worked with a player and we sort of hashed out that bit of mythos and put them in and I was able to work that deity either into just that province or if that lore was across the whole world. Um, I think it would be a lot of fun to create deities with my players depending on what kind of um, why can I not think of the word? Depending on the area, we'll go for that word because I can't think that the deity would sort of represent or oversee. Uh, so for me, I think that that would be a lot of fun and I would do that in my world. Yeah. And, you know, I think that that is something that allows for for room for for discussion and such as as, as such you know some people are going to have a very rigid a very rigid set of what they're thinking for divinity and such you know for example in maybe maybe the world that you've created is monotheistic and only has one god and that is the only god that there is you know if a player has a concept for a a deity that exists within your setting and you like this concept and you want to use it, but your world is monotheistic. One of the things that I've used before is where you have this deity that exists within the world outside of the monotheism. But the real fact is that this deity is in fact not a deity and is only worshipped as if they were a deity. So as kind of like a like a god king type deal or or, you know, like a... Like a famed, fabled adventurer that ascended to a like unreachable heights and now is revered to as a god. Or maybe like a legendary purple worm that shouldn't be worshipped as a god, but is. <laughs> but people were like, hell yeah. Yeah. Um, going on that, if your world doesn't have space for it to be a deity... And depending on what kind of thing it is, there's always cults. Yeah. Cults are great. Yeah. Cults are great. And that's the only time you'll ever hear someone ever <laughs> say that cults are great. <laughs> oh. 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 Zala numbers equals letters. I still haven't read enough of the article to even consider that. Join a cult, people. Join a cult. Join my cult. I'm working on it. Um, so we have a follow-up question here from Z. Um, has a player character ever become a deity or discovered that they have offspring of a deity? Um, so I have a fun little story about it. Um, the, the deity, or the Palinirum, known as the Darkened within Vittore, started out as a player character in one of my earlier campaigns that leveled up, grew in power, got to level 20, and was having these big epic adventures. And we slowly started to actually have this encounter. This is because when you get to those high levels, you have these these things where, what are you gonna do now? You can't just keep sending them after Tarrasque. It doesn't, it doesn't become fun anymore. So I had this, in type encounter where they discovered a, a, a 
a tablet, a godlike totem of power. Um, and then, in a one-on-one D&D session, the player um, had to learn how to control the powers that came with new divinity, navigate the politics of the celestial planes, and figure out how to balance their personal morals and the requirements that were demanded of them as a god. And it made this very interesting, unique god that exists within Vittore, that's the Darkened, who is the god of vengeance and bloodshed. Very representative of, of you know, the, the desire to seek out vengeance in one's heart. You know, patron to revenants. He would, you know, the Darkened would like to bring back people from the grave so they can go and seek out their vengeance. Empower them to do so. Um, and it creates kind of like this unique little aspect here. And the fun part is, if you decide to go down this route, right, you now have an extra person who can help you in your world because they know that God better than anybody. Even better than yourself sometimes. And it makes like this unique network of things. Now, do I suggest that you do this with all your players so each one of them can ascend to godhood and you don't have to work on building your pantheon because they can do it for you? No, don't do that. That's a bad idea. But if you have... Don't let players have that much control. But if you have a player who has put the work in, has developed this big connection to this character, and you can see it turning into this beautiful story moment where you can actually, like, like fully develop this into like this moving and working deity that is not just this simple two-dimensional character within the world then by all means take that opportunity because i'll tell you as someone who's done it it makes some of the most interesting stories when you have that opportunity and i also think part of it comes down to how the deities are either created or ascended in your world. Exactly. Because there's some of the, you know, more traditional wizard stuff where there's the physical mantles that hold the, you know, deities, uh, like that ascended level of power type thing. And characters get it. Can they withstand it and take control of it um yeah are your deities purely born of a god bloodline and then you can get those offspring or would your offspring be closer to like the genasi where they could be a player character but they wouldn't quite have too many bonuses to them yeah. uh but that you could play around with the storyline of your characters yeah. of your player characters a bit that way it really comes down to how your deities come to be deities yeah. and I and I agree I agree that's definitely a point that you want to address before you get too much into the nitty gritty of all that so as we're kind of like wrapping up here kind of like um, finish us out what would you say is 
the most important bit of advice that you can give to a fresh, new, young DM who's just getting into building their own world and doesn't know where to start? What's the advice that you would give? Uh, I think the advice that I would give would be your starting concept. Do you have an idea for, like what you did with creation mythos with deities? Start there. Work your way down from the divine plane down onto the physical one because the deities came about. That might determine how your world starts to look before you even set foot on the ground. Or if you're like me and you have an idea for a conflict in a campaign arc, take that one thing that you have in your mind and build out from it. It doesn't matter where you start with the building, just start at one single point. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I agree. I agree. Um, for, for from my point of view, one of the one of the best pieces of advice I can give when you're starting out like that is because of the fact of how overwhelming it can seem to be sometimes. Start with just building a town. Start with building a small town that's going to have you know what shops what people that live there don't get into too much nitty-gritty about the the, the the religion or or the races that live there just the very basics of what kind of people are they you know what do they do there what's the town centered around start start there then once you have that town then you talk about the city that's nearby then you talk about what country is that city in and you talk about what continent that country's on and as you start to start fanning out and getting bigger you want to contract back down and do it all again until you've slowly started to flesh out all the locations. Once you have that good basis, that good footing of these are all the places, these are all the people, then you can add in little flares about, well, if there's a lot of these farming communities, maybe they have a, uh, a, a goddess of agriculture that plays a big important role in this country. And then you can start to create that and add these things that are important to these people and to the world itself. So, you know, start smaller and work your way out, especially when you're at the beginning. Yeah. And if you get to a point where you're stuck or you don't know, go back one step and maybe take a different route. Yeah. Leave what you don't know for now. Yeah finish it all yeah and take your time it's not a race thank you for tuning in to flavored enemies behind the screens join us next time as we cover horror and suspense and how to create those things within your campaigns thank you 
Good night.